Yeah, that's so good to praise the love of Jesus together. I've introduced myself to most of you, to those who came to the 1005. My name's Kevin, and no shame here, no shame. I get it. I get it. But it's so good to worship together. So good to worship together, and it's so good to come to God's Word now. And uh, for the next, uh, if you're visiting with us for the next few moments, I'll uh, try to share what I believe God's laid on, 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 on me to share from the Scriptures, from His Word to us. We then spend a few moments connecting with one another as we gather the kids, and then with all generations, we respond to what God said to us with worship and praise and thanksgiving uh, to Him. So that's where we're headed. Um, where we've been last week, Jeff Martin's introduced us to this series um, that we're calling The Great Exchange. Martin Luther uh, famously said, and he was, he's referring to the verse in, in 2 Corinthians where uh, he calls the gospel the great exchange, that, that we receive, that though we are poor, we receive the riches of God. That our poverty is exchanged with his riches. That, that, though we are, that though we are shameful, we receive the acceptance of Jesus. And he received our shame. And, and, and so he, uh, he began, and it was a beautiful sermon. If you weren't here, if you weren't, hadn't, didn't hear it, I'd really encourage you to get on the podcast or on our website and listen to it. I was very encouraged and helped by it. And one of the things he, he really um, focused on for us is, is the is the reality that faith, that faith in Jesus is an act of the heart. That faith in Jesus is an act of the heart. And, and by heart, we don't mean emotions. By heart, we mean it's, a, it's, it's the totality of our person. That, that faith in Jesus involves our mind. That faith in Jesus involves our will. And faith in Jesus involves our, our emotions. That our, that our heart includes our mind, our will, and emotion. And so we can see um, things like phrases in Scripture, that are a very common phrase in Scripture is the thoughts of the heart. That Jesus, Simeon prophesied over Jesus as he was a baby, he says that Jesus will reveal the thoughts of many hearts. Or that verse that I read at the beginning of this uh, gathering is Psalm 86, 11, um, give me an undivided heart. Unify my heart. One translation says, unite my heart to fear your name. Would, would my mind and my will, my emotions be all together in being, in being completely and fully devoted towards you, Lord? We often think that there's an order to, to all of this, that, that I need to, to think, and then I need to um, feel, and then I need to act, right? That, that we need to think first, feel second, and act Third, but I think the scriptures teaches that um, that there's a greater interplay going on between just a linear order like that. I think often that's how we process that that, that it's not wrong to think, feel, and then act out of our feeling. But um, for example, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, "When you the, screen, the quotes on the screen, when you are behaving as if you loved someone, you'll presently come to love them." Sometimes we think that. Well, I need to, I just don't love that person. I don't have any feelings towards him and so, them, so I can't act lovingly towards them. And what Lewis is saying and what I believe the, the, the consistent teaching of the scripture is sometimes your feelings will follow your actions. 
Sometimes your feelings will follow your actions. And so our, our hope in this um, series that we're going to uh, be looking at uh, throughout the spring is that we're going to look at the greatness of Jesus' salvation. The greatness of the salvation that is available to all through Jesus and all that is exchanged in that salvation. But we're also going to be asking that, that, that if we've embraced this great salvation with our whole heart, have we really embraced the totality of all that Jesus has accomplished for us with our whole heart? And so are there a question that we want to wrestle with throughout this spring is, are there thoughts in our hearts, thoughts of our hearts that need to be revealed? Are there ways in which we have not totally and fully embraced all that Jesus has won for us? And so this morning we're going to be talking about that in the gospel we have this great exchange of acceptance for shame. Acceptance for shame. And I'm going to root that um, and really pretty much camp out in um, the very first book of the Bible, in the very opening scene of the Bible, after creation, and God has made this good creation. We're going to read the account of Adam and Eve and what happened in the fall when sin entered into God's good creation through Adam and Eve's disobedience and Adam and Eve's desire to be their own master, to be their own God and Lord. And so if you have a Bible, or if, uh, if you brought one with you, either on app or you brought a physical Bible, you can grab a red one and it's in the pew in front of you. Uh, we're going to read a bunch of verses out of Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And we begin reading at Genesis 2, verse 18. Genesis 2, verse 18. It's probably about page 2 or 3 of your Bible. I'm not sure. I didn't look it up. But it's at the beginning. Genesis is the first book. The Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But Adam, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And they'll become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. I'm uh, skip a few verses here, uh, down to chapter 3, verse 7. So Adam and Eve took the forbidden f- fruit. They ate, they disobeyed God. This is the result. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, 
The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she, was, became, she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of God. So our focus this morning as we look at the scriptural theme of uh, shame and acceptance our focus will really revolve around the question that God asks Adam. And the question was this, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were naked? So our first thought this morning is, is looking at this first exchange. What was exchanged in the fall? And specifically the problem of nakedness. So God comes to Adam for his regular chat in the cool of the day. God comes to um, engage in dialogue and, and, and fellowship and friendship with Adam, but this time, Adam hides. And God, as we read, calls out, Adam, where are you? And there's pain in that, and, and there's pain in that question. Where are you? Why are you hiding? And Adam says, I'm hiding from you. Now, Adam has to explain why he's hiding from God. Because he's never done that before. Just like you and I, I believe, need to actually explain why we run from God. And I think what, what, we'll, um, what we'll go over this morning, what we'll see in the scripture this morning, will actually explain some of that for us. Why, why are we running from God? Why are we running from God? And Adam's reason for running from God was that he was naked. So why does God ask, who told you that you were naked? Isn't that a funny kind of question to ask? Who told you you were naked? Um, when I have no clothes on, no one needs to tell me that I have no clothes on. Like, it's just a funny question, right? And coupled by the fact, Adam's always been naked. Like, Adam, you've always been naked so why is that now a problem? Why is that all of a sudden an issue? Chapter 2 ended with Adam and Eve naked and unashamed. 
Adam and Eve were both naked and not ashamed at the end of chapter 2. And so now, fast forward to chapter 3, now all of, uh, all of a sudden Adam has to hide because he's naked. So what's changed, Adam? What's happened? It's the, the reality is, is that it's not that no, Adam no longer has any clothes. He never had any clothes. The difference is in verse 7. That the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. They had a new awareness. They had a new consciousness. They had a, their eyes were now opened and they became aware of, what, of their nakedness. And so God is asking Adam, where did this new awareness come from? Why can't you stand it anymore? Why can't you be naked and unashamed in my presence anymore? You see, to be naked in Scripture is to be known. To be naked is to be known. And before Adam and Eve decided to be their own boss, they had no problem at all with radical vulnerability. They had no problem at all to be fully known, to be fully seen. And to be fully known and to be fully seen brought no shame whatsoever upon them. But now, it's traumatic. Now it's traumatic for them. It it was safe for them to be transparent, but now it's threatening. You see, nakedness is vulnerability. It's transparency. Adam and Eve were created naked and unashamed. But now, we need to cover up. Now, for us to be known, we, like for, if, if people would really know what I really thought and what I really did, what I'm really like, is a source of great shame. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a threat to us. It's a threat to our, to our well-being. Have you, ever, um, have you ever opened up to someone about your weaknesses? Have you ever opened up to someone about your sin, maybe, or about um, the struggles that you've had? And that person responds to you, not with rejection, but with actually with admiration. Where they actually say, you know what, I actually admire you all the more for having opened up. And not tried to cover over, and not tried to hide who you really are and what you're really struggling with. Have you ever had that experience? That's an experience of being known and loved at the same time. It's an experience of being naked and unashamed. You see, we were made to be known and loved. We were made to be known fully and completely and loved fully and completely at the same time. But the tragedy is is that most of us often feel like the best we can do is be loved. We were made to be known and loved. But most of us now feel like the best we can do is be loved. That if, if I was really and actually and fully known, I would be rejected. I wouldn't be loved. We want someone to really know us, to look in and, and say, Oh, I love what I see in you. But we feel like we can only be loved if we're not fully known. Sin makes the entrance of sin into this world and this choice that we have all made to be our own masters and Lord. 
has, brought, has made vulnerability for us painful. And so now nakedness has a, a sense of being unacceptable. It's a source of shame. It's a, shame, is, shame is a fear that someone will see me as I really am and reject me because I'm unworthy. That's what shame is. Shame is a fear that someone will see me as I really am. And when they see me, when they really know me, when they really see what I'm like, if they were to really know what I'm thinking, if they were to, to know what I do when it's in, in private, if they would really and fully know me, they would reject me because I'm not worthy of their love. But we are built to be known and loved. And the result of the fall is now we believe that we can never be both together. We don't want, to see people, want people to see how we really are. And so we're insecure, and we're anxious, and we, we, don't, you know, we, don't, you know, we don't even live up to our own standards. And, and so we don't want people to know our insecurities. We don't want people to know how, how, how weak we are, how unhappy we are, how disappointed we are. We don't want people to, to, to know, that, you know that while I may appear to live up to this standard in private or in my thought life, I actually don't. We, we're so concerned with what people think of us and we need to we need to manage our own image right it, it, this explains i think this this sense of shame and this 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 fear of vulnerability explains why we desperately need to control what other people see of us this this image management social media has made it even worse and made it more obvious i think and then when you're caught when maybe if you you know you're you're talking on the phone, and, and, and then you suddenly realize someone was overhearing what you were saying to the other person. And, and like, oh, man, they, they, they heard that I'm angry and insecure. They, they heard that I'm gossiping. And, and, and when, you, when you get caught, don't you feel this sense of nakedness, this sense of, oh, shame? Like, i got to curl up and hide, or i got to cover over, i got to make excuses Why is all of this? I think scripture says is because there, there is a pure set of eyes out there. There is a set of eyes out there watching. And they are pure. They are totally true. And they are totally unbiased. And they are totally pure. And they are watching us. And so when we get uncovered, when, when, when we become real and honest and vulnerable and transparent, we shirk back and we're f- afraid. Because we know. We know that there are a true set of a, a, a pure set of eyes out there that are watching. Now, Tim Keller has said, you know, if there is not a judge who sees all things in pure and, and will make all things right, if there were not a judge of, of heaven and earth, what hope is there for the world? If there, wa- if there wasn't someone who's going to make all things right, then evil will triumph. What hope is there for the world if there is no judge of heaven and earth? But if there is a judge of heaven and earth, what hope is there for me? (laughs) Because it's not just evil out there, it's evil in here. And we know that those eyes, Hebrews 4.13, the verses on the screen here, Hebrews 4.13, the writer of Hebrews says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's why I think we shirk back from transparency is because we know that there are these eyes out there that are watching and that are exposing us. 
And so we need to manage our image. We need to cover up. We need to hide. Adam and Eve didn't lose their clothes. They never had any. But they lost their acceptability. They, they lost their rightness. They lost their purity. They lost their greatness. And they made this, so Adam and Eve made this horrible exchange. They made, total, they, they made this exchange of, of total acceptance and in, in, in transparency of, of knowledge and love with God. And they exchanged it for, for shame. And now we have this sense of this horrible sense of being unacceptable. We've lost something. We need to control what people see about us, see us, see how they see us and what they know about us. Or, or, they, or you know, because if people really knew me, they wouldn't love me. And so there's the first exchange. The problem of nakedness. Now there's an attempted exchange that, that humanity is, is always trying to come up with solutions to this great problem. Humanity always is, is, is incredibly creative, almost infinitely creative, in, in coming up with ways of trying to cover up the problem of nakedness. Adam and Eve sewed together fig leaves, right? They, they, this, this need to be loved drives us to be incredibly creative in finding ways to cover our nakedness. So Adam and Eve, they hide from each other. They sew garments of fig leaves to hide from each other's eyes. Then they, they hide from God, God's eyes. It says they were hiding among the trees. When God comes to walk with them in the cool of the day, they're, they're hiding among the trees. And then when God engages them in dialogue, they begin making excuses. You know, she made me do it, or the snake made me do it. And so they're really only even hiding from their own eyes. Saying, well, it's not really my fault. It was her fault, or it was its fault. It's definitely not my fault. Because we're so sure that we can't be known and loved at the same time. So we need to, to hide from each other's eyes. We need to hide from God's eyes. We need to hide even from our own eyes. We deceive ourselves. And I think you see this all over the place if you have eyes to look for it. Maybe the most clear example is if um, you're single and someone that you're very interested in asks you out. What, what, gets, what gets triggered when someone that you're very interested in asks you out is, is a whole series of events that are carefully planned to cover up who you really are, Right? All of your preparations are meant to cover up the truth about yourself. And this person said, hey, I'll pick you up at your house at 6 o'clock. And you're like, my house is a mess. And so you got to like, I wouldn't want this person to know that I'm undisciplined and I'm uh, unorganized. So you clean up your house to make it look like you're really organized and disciplined and all of that. You... Take out your best clothes, right? That make you look thinner or taller or, fu- or fuller or shorter than you actually are, right? You just, whatever, whatever, your cl- whatever clothes you pick are going to make you look different than you actually are. Whatever, like, right? The most complimentary clothes you can possibly get. And then you're, you're out on your date and then you're going to carefully guide the, any conversation to areas that which you feel like you actually have some knowledge about, right? Because you wouldn't want that person to know that you're not really well read or you actually don't know anything about this subject. 
So you'll carefully steer the conversation. And the, the hilarious thing is that both of you are doing it at the same time, right? You're both trying to deceive the other person and thinking that they are better, that you are better than you actually are, or different, at least, than you actually are. So there's one example. Many of us have been there. We love to, to see but not be seen. Right? We, we, we're like trying to evaluate the other person. We're like, mm, what, what's, what are they actually like? But, so we're trying to figure out and see through the veneer of the other person. We're trying to see them, but we actually don't like to be seen ourselves. We like to see but not be seen. All right, that's an easy one. Why do so many of us work so hard? Why do you work so hard? Prop up your own image. That I am successful. I can do this. Why are you ready to help anyone and everyone, but will never receive help yourself? Why are you an extremely private person? Why? Umbrella of mercy here, but why are we... Why are Canadians, like, why are we so incredibly private about our finances? Ever notice that? Like, we, we, like we just accept that as a reality, right? That, that is off limits. You cannot ask me how much money I make, how much, you know, and what I do with the money that I do make. You cannot ask me that question. And, and I can't ask you that question. That's just accepted practice in our culture. Why is that? Why is that the one thing? That is absolutely, I, I'm asking an honest question about that. I, I, I don't know. But we accept that. We're, I think that's, you know, whatever. Why do we have this tough exterior? I got it together. Nothing bothers me. Why are you so bitter that this person or this group of people ruined your life? Why, when we make decisions, is one of the primary consideration optics? I hate that conversation, actually. And it's, you know, any decision, it's, why, well, that wouldn't look too good if we actually did that, so let's pretend we're doing this, even though we're going to do this. Like, why are we so concerned with optics? Let's be more concerned with reality, No. All right, what other, what other, how else can I make you feel bad about yourself? Are you wearing makeup today? <laughs> kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> but think about it. Guys, can I get an amen? Why? Think about it. What's the purpose of makeup? All right, here we go. Send all your complaints to jeff at (laughs) ccchurch.ca. Here's the thing, though. They're all fig leaves. They're all fig leaves. They can't actually deal with our inadequacy. We're so frantically trying to cover up, but they're fig leaves. You know what the problem with fig leaves are? 
They wither up. <laughs> and you need to constantly replace them. The other, you know what the other problem with fig leaves are? Their texture is uh, similar to sandpaper. No word of a lie. They're abrasive. They're chafing. You'll chafe under them. Your cover-ups will wither and die. You'll constantly need to come up with more and more and more of them. And your cover-ups will actually be abrasive toward to who you were made to be. You know what, a, you know what a, one of the biggest um, fig leaves in this world and in this room is? Religion. Religion. A fig leaf to cover up and feel better about yourself. Why, have you ever wondered, why are religious people the most unpleasant, defensive, condescending, smug, hostile people you've ever met? That if you would dare question their beliefs or their conduct, you risk their wrath. It's because we're using religion to patch over our sense of inadequacy and our vulnerability. We can use religion as a fig leaf. We can also use our irreligion. We can also not use religion, but also our despising of religion. Our freedom from religion, our freedom from God, our freedom from his gaze. J.P. Sartre um, tells a story in one of his books, one of his chapters, um, of, a, of a man who is looking through a keyhole. And he's looking, he's one of these, un, he's an unseen seer, right? He's looking through a keyhole and, he, and he's just delighting and being able to see other people acting the way that they are acting without knowledge that he's watching them. He loves it. And then he pulls back in disgust because he sees another door. And he's like, what if someone's doing that to me? What if someone is watching me watch someone else? And he says, that, that, that dehumanizes me. That, that robs me of my dignity. And he says, therefore, I reject God. Because for God to be an unseen seer of me dehumanizes me. That I lose my humanity. If there is a God out there who's watching me, that, that dehumanizes me. So he loved to be the unseen seer, but the, the reality of, an, uh, of another unseen seer dehumanizes him, and so therefore he rejected God out of hand. Which, if you break the logic down, is I don't like God, therefore he doesn't exist. In, in its most basic form, right? That's... We understand that's irrational. I don't like God, therefore he doesn't exist. I don't believe, therefore I don't believe in God or sin or judgment. It's just this an attempt to get away from God's gaze. It's just a, it's just a fig leaf for us to patch over our, our vulnerability, our sense of inadequacy. We can't avoid it. We can't avoid it. We try to cover up, but it never quite works. Midnight is coming, Cinderella. Midnight always comes. The facade will disappear. The facade will disappear. And so thank God there's a second exchange. There's a successful exchange. God has provided for our problem of nakedness. 
even though we're constantly trying to cover up our inadequacies and our guilt and our shame, even though we're even though we're constantly trying to prove ourselves to God and to others and to ourselves, God says to Adam and Eve, "Your covering is insufficient. Your covering is insufficient. You cannot cover your shame on your own, and so I will cover you." And so what we can so easily miss in that account, which I read from Genesis, is that God says, I will provide a covering for you. And so through the death of an animal, God takes skins and provides them with adequate covering. You see, this theme of God covering our shame runs all through the scripture. Maybe you know the story of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet, a minor prophet, but he still made the Bible. So, no, minor just means the book is short. Um, Hosea is a prophet who God says, um, Hosea, marry Gomer. And Gomer, you need to know right from the beginning, Gomer is going to be unfaithful to you. And the reason I'm calling you to marry Gomer is not because she has a beautiful name. The reason I'm calling you to marry Gomer, Hosea, is because you will be a picture of what my relationship with my people is like. That I've married, I've married my people and they're so unfaithful to me. They prostitute themselves to other gods all the time. They prostitute their hearts. They, they, um, they give themselves to other affections all the time. And so that it happens that God's prophecy comes true. Hosea marries Gomer and she is unfaithful and she is so eventually sold into slavery. And there's this beautiful picture where Gomer is on the auction block. She's on the slave block, standing there naked and Hosea buys her back at great cost to himself. And he, when, he, when he buys her back, he doesn't shame her. He doesn't, he doesn't publicly flog her. No, it says he speaks tenderly to her. He woos her. He covers her. He invites her back into their home, into the marriage. This beautiful picture of God covering our shame. In Ezekiel chapter 16, there's this beautiful story, a beautiful picture. God says, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field. For on the day you were born, you were despised. Which is this ancient, common ancient practice often um, where young girls were unwanted and so they were just literally discarded. Get away from me. Now we do the same thing in our culture, right? We just sanitize it, clean it up, privatize it so we don't see it. We do it in the clinic. We do the same thing. He says, then I passed by, this is God speaking, I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant in the field. You grew up. Later, I passed by. When I looked at you, I saw that you were old enough for love. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. It's a beautiful picture of God covering our shame, God covering our inadequacy. Isaiah 61, verse 10. That's on the screen here. Isaiah 61 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. God covers us. He provides rightness for us. Righteousness is just right relationship. He provides it. 
for us. God says to Adam and Eve, come out from behind the tree. Come out from behind the tree. The only way to deal with your shame. You, you, think, it, you think you need to hide, but come on out. Come be naked and unashamed with me. Admit what you've done. Look at Psalm 32. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. These, this is, these verses are quoted in, by Paul in, in Romans chapter 4. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. In a new spirit there is no deceit. How does God cover our sins? How does God do it? He says, you know, God's saying the only eyes that matter don't see your sin. I, I, don't, I have no regard for your sin whatsoever, God says. I have no regard for it. I, I've covered it up. And you say, well, aren't cover-ups bad? Aren't cover-ups evil? Watergate? He says, well, blessed is the one to whom the Lord doesn't count sin. Some translations impute sin. It's an accounting word. It means charge. Your sin is covered not by sweeping it under the rug, but by charging it to Jesus' account. And so Adam and Eve are kicked out of Eden. And, and, and as we read, there's an angel guarding the tree of life with a sword to say the only way back to the tree of life, if one will lead you back to the tree of life, if, if someone will lead you back to eternal life, they will have to go under the sword. So do you see that you can be totally accepted, completely loved, because of what Jesus did on the cross? That all of your shame can be covered based on what Jesus did on the cross for you. Now please don't say, well, you know, I'm trying to be a Christian. I need to sort a few things out in my life first. No, those are fig leaves. Those are fig leaves. Because if you do try to patch things together, you, you know, if you try to patch together your own covering, your own rightness, you know, even if you do clean yourself up a bit, even if you do get some things together, it's just going to make you proud and self-righteous and scared that you'll actually get found out because you're not perfect. But can you say with that great hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. You see, we need to be known and loved. We need to be naked and unashamed. And through Jesus, you can be. Your shame can be covered perfectly. I need to tell you the full story of our need for covering, however. The scriptures want to say that, that our fig leaves will be exposed. That one day, our fig leaves will be exposed. One of the most terrifying verses in the scripture is Luke 23, when, picturing this day when Jesus will return and picturing those who have rejected Jesus, who have actively um, tried to cover themselves up, tried to cover their own shame, and as they're exposed, as they become transparent and vulnerable and they realize the insufficiency of their own coverings, they're going to cry out and ask for the mountains to cover them. Cover us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. You see, we need to be known and loved. And because of our sin, we're sure that the only way to be loved is to cover up and not admit anything. But the invitation this morning is to come before God naked and vulnerable, dropping all pretense, dropping all pride, dropping our coverings, and coming into his presence with humble submission. 
holding nothing back at all, trusting in his provision for us. This is what we were created for, intimate relationship with God. It's the reason why marriage is a metaphor for the greater reality of the relationship between Jesus and his church. And you see, if you come to Jesus today, you have the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face upon you and give you peace. I just have to say one more thing, and then I'll be done. Is I want us to think about what kind of a church community, what kind of a community does that kind of vulnerability create? I said before that religion is one of these great fig leaves, right, where we try to cover up, where we, we, we come to places like this and rooms like this and gatherings like this, and we feel like we need to get it all together. I better not expose myself. I better not slip up. I better not say the wrong thing, or I better not um, let out that I, I, do, I don't know very much, or that I don't have my life altogether. We feel sometimes like when you come to religious gatherings that, that you've got to have it all together. You've got to cover up. You, get a, you better make sure you have new fig leaves on, right? Fresh fig leaves that aren't withered. But the reality is that as a church community that, that embraces, that exalts in, that loves grace... The reality is, is what holds us together, what we have in common, is our shame, is our inability, is the fact that we don't have it together, is the fact that we need grace, that we are sinful, that every one of us is sinful. And so it should come as no surprise whatsoever that we don't have it all together, that we've messed up this week, that we don't know all that much. And so confession in the community of faith Confession in the church ought not be a scary thing because we believe in grace. And so the common denominator is that all, every one of us doesn't have it all together. We need the work of Jesus. I'm so bad, God had to kill his son to make me right with him. And so confession, vulnerability, transparency ought to be a regular thing. So come out from behind the trees, drop the fig leaves, and let Jesus cover you, will you? Father in heaven, thank you for your word to us today. Thank you for the amazing gift of of Jesus. Thank you that in Christ we can be fully known and fully loved. Would you convince us of that today? We're we're so tempted to not believe that. We're, We're so tempted to think, if I'm fully known in this community or if I'm fully known before you, God, that, you won't reje- that I'll be rejected. I won't be accepted. I, w- I won't be loved. But Lord, would you show us Jesus, the Jesus who was stripped naked on the cross, who took our shame, who took our sin and banished it and has taken it far, as far from us as the east is from the west. Would you convince us of that great love and that great grace today so that we can be real people? that this would be a safe, non-accusatory environment where we can simply encourage one another and revel in your great grace to us. Father, would you do that? In the name of Jesus, we pray.